Over the last uh, several years, I've enjoyed watching a certain type of documentary on the different streaming services that are out there. It's a documentary uh, about the, 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 the feats, the exploits of high-altitude climbers. Uh, maybe you've seen The Dawn Wall or Free Solo, which is about uh, the scaling of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. Or maybe most recently, the, the movie on Netflix, 14 Peaks. Uh, 14 Peaks is about a Nepali high-altitude climber named Nirmal Persia, who within seven months scaled all 14 of the world's mountains that are 8,000 meters or higher. Now, there's something that you notice, and maybe I just watched these out of the sheer, sheer fascination with, with this aspect, but you'll notice that these, these high-altitude climbers have a near-psychotic obsession with their craft. I mean, that's really what it takes to do what they do. Uh, they, for months, plan meticulously their climb. They are going through months of cardiovascular training. They're, they're willing to endure harsh and often frigid conditions. That's really what it takes to be a world-class mountain climber. Now, friends, don't get me wrong. I do not enjoy these movies because I aspire to that. I mean, like not at all. In fact, uh, last April, about a year ago, uh, Douglas Reed, one of our supported workers, was here in town. And um, I, along with, I think, Doug, pretty much went couch to Camelback. We went and climbed Camelback Mountain, which is not 8,000 meters, friends. That is 825 meters, and uh, when I say that within the first 10 minutes of our climb, I was bent over, huffing and puffing, and nearly lost my breakfast, that is what happened, and made numerous stops up the, the hill, even to the point where, as we were about three quarters up, I told Doug, I said, I am never doing this again. <laughs> Friends, in order to become a skilled climber, it requires training. It requires the pursuit of physical stamina and strength and skill. Friends, you should not expect to naturally drift into that type of fitness. It may be possible to go couch to camelback. I did it, and I'm here to tell the story. But it is certainly not possible to go couch to Everest, for instance. It takes planning and commitment and practice. In our passage today, in 1 Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul writes to his ministry disciple Timothy about another all-out pursuit, a type of training that ought to mark not just an elite few, the normal Persias of the Christian life, but really all those who follow Jesus by faith. He calls Timothy and all of us to the pursuit of godliness. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4, friends, I did not look up the page number in the Bible underneath your seat. I believe it's in the 990s, so hopefully I'm accurate on that. Friends, remember that 1 Timothy is Paul's letter to Timothy, his ministry apprentice, whom Paul had left in Ephesus to restore a sick church back to spiritual health. As we've seen, false teachers had arisen in the church, and the bad doctrine they taught, combined with their ungodly lives, had brought this church to the brink of disaster. And so Paul writes this letter to, to fortify young Pastor Tim for the hard work of what we might call today church revitalization, the effort to spiritually revitalize the church. 
Over the first three chapters, Paul lays out for Timothy the dangers of false teaching and a biblical vision for the local church, its worship, its leadership, and its mission. Now, friends, even though 1 Timothy is a, is a personal letter, thus far it has not been all that personal. In, in fact, up to chapter 4, verse 5, where we left off two weeks ago, Paul has only used three second-person singular verbs in addressing Timothy. But now, starting in chapter 4, verse 6, through the end of the letter, Paul employs 23 second-person singular verbs. In fact, eight of those verbs are found in our passage today, chapter 4, verse 6 to verse 16. What's the point? The point is Paul now pivots from more broad doctrinal discussion to more specific and even personal exhortation to Timothy. In our passage today, Paul makes a deeply personal appeal for Timothy to pursue godliness in his life and faithfulness in his ministry. Let's read our text together, starting in verse 6 of chapter 4. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the, the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. Each week, I try to give you a main idea from the text, friends, that I trust will be the main idea of the sermon. So here it is this morning. The main idea of 1 Timothy 4, 6 to 16. Make godliness the pursuit of your life now with your eyes set on the life to come. Make godliness the pursuit of your life right in the here and now with your eyes on the life to come. Two points this morning from the text. First of all, from verses 6 to 11, train for godliness. Number two, from verses 12 to 16, persist in faithfulness. Train for godliness, persist in faithfulness. Friends, this is one case where I'm not sure that the, the section divisions of the ESV is, is helpful because it seems evident to me that verse 11, command and teach these things, is talking about what Paul has already said in verses 6 to 10. And then in verse 12, he advances the discussion further in laying out the type of life and ministry in an expanded way that Timothy ought to cultivate. Now, 
Some of you may be sitting here wondering uh, if this passage is really relevant to you today since Paul is exhorting a church leader, a, a pastor, and most of you are not one. And while, friends, the, the application bullseye of this section of text is indeed for pastor elders in the church, much of this, ins- of this instruction is clearly meant for all Christians. Are, are we really to think that the pursuit of godliness is only for elders? That godliness, which holds promise for the age to come, is only for pastors? Of course not. That's why Paul exhorted Timothy in verse 11, command and teach these things. This, this isn't just pertinent to you as a pastor, Timothy. It's vital for your flock. Use your authority to command and teach your congregation about the importance of pursuing godliness. So friends, it's in this vein that I'm preaching to you this morning. It's really to kind of tightly bind our collective conscience to the importance of pursuing above all else a Godward life, a life oriented to God and committed to glorifying Him in all things, a life of godliness. Let's look at these first few verses and the first point, train for godliness. I probably could have included verse 6 in my sermon two weeks ago because it clearly refers back to verses 1 to 5. If you put these things, these things being correcting the false religion of asceticism, remember we saw that in verses 1 to 5, the theology of God's goodness that kind of undermines that asceticism. If you put these things before the brothers and sisters in the church, Timothy, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Friends, what is Paul doing here? He's trying to motivate Timothy toward a faithful pastoral ministry, which at times includes the hard work of refuting poor doctrine. The asceticism of the false teachers, friends, had laid an axe to the gospel of grace. And so if Timothy dealt with it faithfully, he would prove that he's a good servant of King Jesus. He would demonstrate his training. That's the word that's translated there. Training is really a a word that means education or nurturing or child rearing in the apostolic doctrine passed down from Jesus to the apostles and the apostles of which Paul was one to Timothy. Paul says, Timothy, if you'll you'll put these things before the church, like, like a waiter puts a good meal before his table, if you'll do this, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. You'll be a good diakonos, a good deacon of the chief deacon. Friends, think about what this one phrase teaches us about the ministry of those who oversee the churches as pastor elders. Elders are are not to be autocratic authoritarians who lord over the flock. Friends, we are mere servants of the king. We model our ministry after the chief servant who, after all, emptied himself of of his divine prerogatives and became a servant for our salvation. Friends, is there any higher commendation for us as Christians than to be known as a faithful servant of Christ Jesus? If you've seen the show, The West Wing, uh, I love that show. I've seen it a few times, actually, all the way through. Uh, In The West Wing, over and over in that show, Those who serve in President Jed Bartlett's administration say, I serve at the pleasure of the president. I serve at the pleasure of the president. The honor is not so much in what they did, 
but in whom they served. And so it is with pastors and really with all Christians. Friends, while servanthood may often seem like it has a, a downward mobility, well, friends, don't ever forget that to serve the king means that you and I represent the sovereign of the universe. And we will follow where he has gone. It's downward mobility now, but upward mobility one day as high as you can possibly get. We will be raised with Christ and will reign with him for all eternity. Paul continues in verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul once again reminds Timothy that just as much as he is to be nurtured by sound doctrine so that he can then feed the flock, so also he's to reject what would harm himself and the church. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Remember from chapter 1, the false teachers were promoting a, a speculative theology that was based on myths or fables and the Old Testament genealogies. Paul says, Timothy, these contrived fables are irreverent. They belittle God and his word, and they're silly. They're like old wives' tales. Don't even entertain them, Timothy. Don't give such poor theology quarter in your mind or in your church. Friends, even today, these type of irreverent and silly myths are rampant, aren't they, within the broader quote-unquote Christian community. Whether it's numerology or prognostications about the end times or blogs and YouTube channels that run constant hit pieces on the ministries of Christian leaders, beloved, do not waste your time with such speculations. Don't belittle the Lord by giving such teaching based on speculation any attention at all. Rather, ground yourself in sound doctrine. Ultimately, the problem with these irreverent and silly myths, friends, isn't just that they're wrong. It's that they foster ungodliness. You see the connection there? They don't elicit worship and reverence in our hearts, which is what happens when we prayerfully apply God's word by faith. So, so Paul says, rather than giving your time and energy to that which is harmful to your life, train yourself for godliness. Now, before we go further, let's make sure that we know what godliness is. I think Paul Tripp's definition gets at it really well. Tripp said, godliness is a God-honoring life between the time you come to Christ and the time you go home to be with him. Godliness is simply a God-honoring life from the time you come to Christ to the time you go home to be with him. You know, friends, before Christ, we were marked by just the opposite, weren't we? We were marked by ungodliness, a life fundamentally dishonoring to him. In our sin and rebellion, we pursued with eagerness our own pleasures and passions and pride. What marked us was not worship of our God through faith in his son. What marked us was self-worship and idolatry of false gods. Even if we had kind of a, a veneer of righteousness through efforts to please God, without Christ as our mediator and the transforming work of the Spirit to give us a new spiritual heart that can really seek God rightly, we had no ability to honor God with our lives. But now, in Christ Jesus, God has made us godly. 
He's oriented our life toward Him and given us the ability to glorify Him with our lives. Friends, for every one of us, the Lord has put us on a journey of what is to be ever-increasing godliness. Now that we're in Christ, the rest of our lives must be spent dedicated to the pursuit of living a God-honoring life. To bring Him praise by our thoughts, our motives, our words, our deeds. We live to reflect the glory of our Creator and Redeemer. Now, it's not as obvious in the ESV as it is in other translations, but by telling Timothy to train himself, Paul is switching metaphors here, okay? Whereas the Greek word translated trained in verse 6 has to do with education or nurturing, in verse 7, it has to do with exercise. In the original Greek, it's the word gymnazo. It's from the word group that we get our English words gymnasium or gymnastics, Paul switches the metaphor from schooling to sports. And all God's people said. Seriously, by using this phrase, train yourself for godliness, Paul wants Timothy's mind to go to the ancient Olympic arena, to the boxing ring, to the racetrack, to the football field or the basketball court or his local Ephesian fitness club. The word trained here is a sports exercise word, and you don't even have to know Greek to prove it. In verse 8, Paul writes, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. There you have it. Paul here is not denigrating physical exercise. Friends, Paul would not have used this metaphor if he didn't believe that physical exercise were a good thing. Every person in this room, knows the commitment and sweat it takes to train for physical fitness. You know, mission scholars estimate that, that Paul averaged close to 300 miles on foot each year of his 30-year ministry of traveling around the ancient world to plant and strengthen churches. Paul himself valued fitness. And, and this very type of personal responsibility and commitment necessary for physical training is what Paul says should mark believers in the spiritual realm. Friends, no athlete who expects to win the race or competition just shows up. They don't go couch to competition like I did with Camelback. No, they devote themselves in a single-minded pursuit of excellence. They train their muscles and mind to master their sport. They discipline themselves in their eating and their regimen to win the prize. Paul says, this is the mindset, Timothy, that you should have, that every believer should have about godliness. Friends, we should not expect to drift into increasing godliness to default into growth in godliness. Notice Paul doesn't say Timothy, just pray about it and let God work. His theology of sanctification is a far shot from let go and let God. Paul says, if you want to be godly, it's going to take grace-fueled work. Now, you might be thinking, John, that sounds a lot like legalism. And after all, Paul says, training for godliness holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Is Paul advocating like a a works-based theology of achievement in order to attain the life to come? No, not at all. 
In fact, there are clues all over this passage, friends, that Paul understands salvation and reconciliation with God to be by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. In verse 6, just look at it to prove this case for a second, okay? In verse 6, Paul talks about Timothy's training in the words of faith, clearly referring to the message of salvation in Christ. Down in verse 12, Paul exhorts Timothy to be an example in, among other things, faith. And then perhaps most obviously in verse 10, Paul says, For to this end we toil and strive because... Friends, conjunctions are super important to good theology. We toil and strive because we've set our hope on the living God, who is indeed the Savior of all people, especially of those, drumroll please, who believe. So whatever training for godliness is, friends, it is not at odds with faith in Christ to save in fact, what I think all of this faith data in this passage indicates is that training for godliness is simply working out the muscles of our faith. It's what faith does in action. Those who are relying on Christ to save them, friends, those people want to be godly. They want to honor God. They'll not do it perfectly. We'll struggle. There'll be some days we don't train very hard, but a true believer will make it his or her aim to train for godliness. He or she will do whatever it takes to honor God with their lives. Friends, one who trains for godliness will work out his or her salvation with fear and trembling. Beloved, think in your mind just right now. Think in your mind about the most in shape, physically fit athlete you know. And if you're thinking Tom Brady, just put him out of your mind. He's not... He's off limits. Patrick Mahomes, okay. Now just think about whoever you know is the most physically fit person you know. Does the level of commitment of that person in your mind toward earthly fitness resemble your own personal commitment to train for godliness? Or are you lax in your walk with Christ? The spiritual laziness and lethargy mark your days. Friends, I think it's time for, for some of us. In fact, I think what Paul is calling us to is to get off the spiritual couch and start training for godliness. Why? Why is cultivating this type of God-honoring life so important? I think it's always super helpful when the New Testament authors or even Old Testament authors just tell us the right motivation, right? And that's what Paul does in verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Why does bodily training only have some value, friends, and not in every way? What's obvious, its value is tied to a clock that is perpetually ticking down to the end of your days. Bodily training only holds value for this life on earth. Friends, eventually, no matter how much you put in the push-ups, no matter how rigid your workout regimen is, all of you in this room, all of us, myself included, we're going to grow old, our muscles will atrophy, our bones will grow brittle, and our cardio will Stop completely. Physical stamina and beauty have a shelf life. 
But godliness is of value in every way as it holds, present, or holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. In other words, not only does godliness promise us something now, it promises us a lot then. You see, the, the reason, friends, that we should work so hard to have a life that honors God isn't merely to have character that resembles God's character, but rather baked into the very godliness that Paul advocates for here is a faith that holds promise for the life to come. Friends, this is, again, why I, I think Paul's metaphor of training for godliness is, is about us working out the muscles of faith. That's what he's talking about. As we rest on Jesus, who, by the way, we learned in chapter 3, verse 16, is the mystery of godliness. As we trust in him, as we rely on him, we will then by faith seek to honor the triune God with our lives. That active life of faith is what Paul calls godliness. As we live to honor the Lord, this pursuit establishes our faith in Christ as real and authentic and will be proven so on the last day when we reach glory. Training for godliness by faith in Christ holds a solid promise, friends, that heaven awaits us. Friend, on the other hand, if your life is patterned after ungodliness, well, you really can have no such confidence, can you? That you will stand before the Lord on the last day and be right with Him. Because it's those who persevere to the end by faith in Christ that have that confidence. Here's the deal, brothers and sisters. As we exercise for godliness, we train ourselves to love what we will love for all eternity. When we pursue godliness, we prepare ourselves for that moment when the presence of sin is severed in a millisecond by the power of the returning king and death is put to death forever. On that endless day, friends, we will know and love and serve our king fully and flawlessly in a life of eternal joy. Godliness prepares us for that day. Paul says this saying is trustworthy. It's deserving of full acceptance. Again, this is kind of Paul's take it to the bank statement. You can take it to the bank. It's his third trustworthy saying in 1 Timothy, all of them having to do with our salvation. Take it to the bank. Godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for this life and the life to come. So friends, don't fritter away your days. Don't let the allure of this world and the pleasures of sin and the priorities of earth be what you train for. Don't give them the reps of your thoughts, desires, and actions. Friends, instead, make godliness the pursuit of your life like an athlete trains to win the prize. Because after all, we run, Paul says, to win the prize that is set before us. King Jesus did the same, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So let us run the race set before us. Brothers and sisters, if we were to look at your life, if we were to look at what makes you tick, if we were to peer into your motivations, at your thoughts, at your wants, at your priorities, at the way you spend your time and money, at your entertainment, and hobbies, and recreation, at your marriage, and parenting, 
at your workplace attitude, at your commitment to know and study the Bible, at your prayer life, at your evangelism, at your fight against besetting sins, at your commitment to the good of the brothers and sisters in this local church, at your habits about our Lord's Day gatherings. If we were to look at your life, friends, would we discover that you are training yourself for godliness? Or would we find a Christian who's more of a spiritual couch potato? Beloved, Paul's metaphor here and my probing questions are not meant to browbeat us. They're not meant to browbeat you into kind of a a guilt trip into godliness. Friends, this metaphor is meant to motivate you. It's meant to function like a good personal trainer who won't let you off the hook with shoddy effort, right? A good coach. Let's go. Get up. Keep, up the, keep going. Keep up the work. Lift your eyes and see the finish line. Glory awaits. We toil and labor because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the great Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Friends, if the Spirit is convicting you this morning, confess your sin to the Lord. Perhaps grab a close friend and ask him or her to hold you accountable in these ways that you need to be training for yourself for godliness. The worst thing you could do is hear this and just kind of wallow in despair or be paralyzed by the task that lies ahead of you. Rather, friends, just get back into the gym and by grace through Christ, by faith, start training again. Friend, if you're here not a Christian, that because in the middle of verse 10 is super important for you. You need to understand, friends, that we Christians do not strive to live in a certain way in order to get God to love us. We strive to honor him with our lives because we know that he loves us in Christ. We've come to understand this this living God to be our only hope of eternal life. And so we've, in response, given our lives to him through Christ. Yes, we believe intellectually that on the third day, Jesus got up from the dead and walked out of his tomb. We believe intellectually that this world actually has a designer, that God created at the beginning of time the heavens and the earth, and that we are accountable to him as our, our righteous and holy God. Further than intellectual belief, friends, this this faith that we've been talking about, it extends down to our will. The scriptures tell us that even though humanity rebelled against God, God loved us and he sent his son to bring us back to him. Jesus Christ lived the life that we should have lived but did not. In fact, we failed so miserably to do so. And we incurred his wrath and guilt upon ourselves. He died on the cross, Jesus did, not only living that, that perfect life that we should have lived, he died as a substitute sacrifice in our place to atone for our sins completely and bear God's wrath that we deserved. And then he rose from the grave to defeat death for all who would trust him, proving that God indeed accepted that sacrifice for sinners. So really, friends, the only fitting response to this salvation that God brings us in Christ is not to work hard for it, for a godliness that you really can't achieve on your own. The only fitting response is to reach out by faith and believe. 
to turn from your sin with your will and embrace what Christ has done for you and rely on his work to rescue you from the hell that awaits you. It's then, friends, as you know and embrace his full and free grace and forgiveness that you're ready to follow him in a life of faith, a life of godliness. Friends, God is the, is the savior of all people. That's what the text said. He's the savior of all people, but it is not apart from faith in Christ. There's no limitation to God's love for those who believe in Christ Jesus. So friends, come to Christ today. You don't have to to pray a particular prayer right now. You don't have to recite any mantra that I would repeat before you. You just simply say in your heart, oh Lord Jesus, I believe. I'm trusting in you alone right now to be right with God and have eternal life. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want to be done with my sin. I'm turning my life, the reins of my life over to you. My life is yours. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you would like to know more about this gospel, friends, one of our elders, one of our members would love to talk with you more. In fact, you can just grab any one of us and say, tell me more about what it means to be a Christian. We would love that opportunity later after the service. Let's look at these last verses together. Number two, persist in faithfulness. Persist in faithfulness. Friends, maybe you've heard about the awkwardness of preaching to the choir. Well, in these verses uh, that we're about to go through, in many ways, I'm preaching first and foremost to myself and to Bo and to Steve, if he were here. But he missed his flight yesterday and is coming back today. In verses 12 to 16, Paul rattles off seven rapid-fire commands that Timothy should heed as he leads the Ephesian church. Friends, it's really elders and would-be elders who should primarily sense the arrow of Paul's exhortation aimed at them. And if you really want to understand what Paul is doing in these verses, you just need to know that he aims for, for Pastor Timothy to watch his life and his doctrine, to pay attention to the way that he lives and to what he teaches. And of course, that's what he says explicitly in verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this type of faithfulness. But each of these seven commands, friends, are really for that, for that purpose throughout this section. So for instance, in verse 12, Paul exhorts Timothy about the example of his life. Then in verse 13, he moves toward Timothy's ministry of the word which seems to be in view, at least in part, also in verse 14, when he tells Timothy not to neglect the gift that has been given to him. Then verses 15 to 16 summarize verses 12 to 14. Uh, Verse 15 is about the manner that Timothy should go about his life and ministry. He should give himself wholly to practicing these things. He should immerse himself in them. Then in verse 16, Paul summarizes what he's just written, written and exhorts his young disciple not to give up. Persist in giving careful attention to your life and to your teaching, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. First up, back in verse 12, Paul exhorts Timothy to set a Christ-like example. Paul writes in verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the, uh, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, Impurity. Friends, this verse clues us into the fact that that Timothy was still a young man 
at least by cultural standards, right? He was likely in his 30s. And as, as is still the case today, there's a temptation in every church for older church members to discount the ministry of someone that is young because of their, their lack of age or lack of experience. At first glance, this command by Paul seems really outside Timothy's control, doesn't it? How could Timothy dictate whether others look down on him for his age? It's clear that what Paul is tell, telling Timothy is, friends, don't give anyone a reason to belittle your youth. Let your life's example commend your ministry and build your credibility. When people hold your age against you, Timothy, when they question your leadership because of your age, let your life be your defense. Let that build your credibility. Be an example, Timothy, in your speech, your conduct, the way you love others, your pursuit of purity. Don't undermine your ministry with a sloppy spiritual life. Live what you preach. In other words, pastor elders are to model their message. We are to give the church an example to follow. Likewise, Peter wrote in his epistle in 1 Peter 5.3 that elders aren't, are not to domineer over those in our charge, but to be examples to the flock. Bo and Steve, if you're listening on the audio tomorrow or the next day, I trust that this word will land freshly on you guys like it landed freshly on me this week. God has given us the charge to be examples to the flock. Our blueprint for elder ministry isn't just to minister the word, but to model it. Beloved, we as elders ought to set the pace in this way, but all believers... All believers ought to strive to be an example of Christ-likeness. It's not just that we try to follow Jesus, but we want to try to follow Jesus in such a way that when others see our lives, they want to follow Jesus like we do. You know, when it comes to age and maturity, when it comes to age and maturity, there is certainly something to be said for the advance of years leading to the advance of maturity. In fact, Friends, when I became the pastor here a couple of years ago, this is one area that I felt a bit of apprehension about, given the fact that the previous pastor was in his mid-50s, right? And had already raised a family and all the rest. Vastly more life experience than I have. I came as a 37-year-old man to pastor the church. There are certain things that I just have not yet experienced. That, and then when I do experience those things, I trust the Lord will make me more effective as a pastor and, a, and a, as a Christian. But guess what? Paul indicates here in 1 Timothy 3.12 that age should not be an excuse for ungodliness or spiritual immaturity. And I think that goes for any believer of, of any age. Teens, teens, you should not have in your brain that your youth is the time to kind of experience the pleasures of the world, to sow your wild oats, and eventually, eventually you'll have time for Jesus when you get older. The world will tell you that, but it's a lie. The truth is that your youth is prime time. Your youth is prime time to serve Christ with all your youthful vigor. It's the very time, teenager, to be training your life for godliness. And strive to set an example that others can follow. 
I can say with full confidence, as can dozens of believers in this room, you will never regret pursuing Christ in your youth. Living for Jesus is always worth it. Let's look at Paul's second command. Not only should Timothy lead by example, he needs to lead through an outside authority. He needs to lead by the right use of authority. Throwing one's weight around and imposing one's personality and ideas is really the furthest thing from what pastoral ministry and authority is all about. Friends, I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. Pastoral authority is derivative. It's derived from King Jesus through the King's word. That's why Paul exhorts Timothy in verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself Uh, excuse me, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. There's really nothing casual about that word devote, is there? It's as intense as train yourself. It's an intense word. Pastoral ministry, friends, is word ministry. Pastors are to be devoted to it. And Paul here seems to focus on on the public ministry of the word when the church gathers, doesn't he? First, he says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Now, friends, remember that in the 60s AD, when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, very few believers had personal copies of the Scripture. The printing press did not exist until AD 1446, when the Bibles began to be mass-produced, right? But the scrolls of the ancient manuscripts definitely were not mass-produced. So, friends, how did God's people come to know and internalize the Word? It was through the public reading of long portions of the Scripture when the church gathered. It had been this way for thousands of years, stretching back to the time of Moses. Reading the Scripture publicly, friends, is indispensable for our spiritual formation. You know, at this time, the the canon of recognized Scripture was even still in progress, right? Right? It's certainly the, the canon, the, the recognized scripture at that time. It certainly included the Old, the Old Testament. And, and really, there's plenty of evidence that as the New Testament was being written, it was being immediately recognized as Christian scripture by the church. Come back in two weeks, actually, and I'll show you one place that we see that in action in 1 Timothy. It's not hard to understand, then, is it, friends, that from the earliest days of the church, when the church gathered on the Lord's Day, they would read publicly from both the Old and the New Testaments. Perhaps you've noticed we kind of loosely follow this model in our Sunday gatherings here at RGC. If my sermon is from the New Testament, we often read the Scripture publicly from the Old Testament and vice versa. But in addition to publicly reading the Scripture, Timothy and all pastors who teach the Word are to devote themselves to exhorting and teaching from it. What's the difference? Well, while teaching seeks to illuminate the hearer's mind to understand the word, exhortation or preaching seeks to bind the will to obey the word. It's both explanation and application. Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, devote your ministry to publicly reading the word, explaining what it means, and applying it to hearts. It sounds an awful lot like expositional preaching, doesn't it? That's because that's what it is. That's what it is. 
And, and friends, this is good news for pastors and their churches because it just so happens that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It just so happens that, friends, Christ builds his church and advances his kingdom through the proclamation of his word. It just so happens that believers grow in grace by understanding and applying the scripture as taught by pastors and teachers. Friends, I very rarely try to kind of direct attention to myself, but let me just say this briefly. As much as I wish that I could get my sermon prep done in less time than I do, believe me, I wish that, so does my, so does my wife, um, I, I, I don't apologize for the amount of time I spend on that. I spend probably 20 to 25 hours a week preparing the Sunday sermon. I believe Paul had this very thing in mind when he told Timothy, devote yourself to the word. Don't neglect your gift. Immerse yourself in these things. Why? Because to do so is to provide the very avenue for the spirit to give life to the dead and to renew the living when the church gathers. It's to participate in God's mission to gather a people for himself that would be to his glory both now and for all eternity. Paul's third exhortation concerns Timothy's exercising of his ministry gift. Verse 14, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So, so what was this gift that was given to Timothy at his ordination for ministry? Well, we're never told explicitly. Some have said it's his teaching gift. Others have said it's his, his empowerment for ministry. Perhaps uh, Calvin's more generic description is close. Calvin said that, that this gift is the grace with which Timothy has been endowed for the upbuilding of the church. The grace with which he's been endowed for the upbuilding of the church. Regardless of what it is specifically, this gift from the Lord was, was conferred upon Timothy, or at least confirmed by the elders, by the church, by a prophetic utterance when the church commissioned him for ministry as symbolized by the elders laying their hands on him. Friends, whatever this gift is, it is not static, is it? It's not static. It's dynamic. Paul says, don't neglect it. In 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy to fan the gift into flame. It's a reminder that we who shepherd the church should always be prayerfully growing and progressing in the gifts that the Lord has given us for, the, for his glory and the building up of the church. Friends, these verses that, I, that I've just read, these verses give you as a congregation a blueprint of what you should expect from me. It gives you the plan, the playbook of what you should expect from me in pastoral ministry. You should expect me to lead by example, to lead through the authority of God's revealed word, and to exercise faithfully the gifts that God has given to me and the sacred trust that you've bestowed upon me as a church. It's the same with our lay elders in the ways that they lead and teach our church family. I mentioned that the verse 15 starts Paul's summary of the previous three verses, while also showing how pastors uh, should go about this work, how they should go about setting the, the example and ministering the word. Paul writes, practice these things. Other translations say, be diligent in these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. 
Friends, uh, Paul does not mean by practice here the type of kind of rote practice that I used to do on the piano in the afternoon after school, right? The kind of let's just get it done so I, then I can go outside and play with my friends. No. Paul is not talking about an apathetic practicing, but an all-in practicing. It's further defined by that next verb, immerse yourself in these things. Give yourself fully to them, Timothy. There should be, there should be no doubt that pastors are earnest and serious and locked into a life and ministry that honors God. As Paul rounds out his instruction, he gives two motivations for this type of faithfulness. Look at him, verse, verse, verse 15. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that, here's the first motivation, so that all may see your progress. It's kind of shocking, isn't it? Elders, friends, should cultivate a life and ministry that honors Christ so that you all may see that we're progressing in those things. Friends, this verse is both convicting and a relief to me. It's convicting because there is a very real temptation for pastors to be seen as having got it all together, to having arrived, as being an, as near a sterling example as possible in every possible area. And, and some of that, friends, is well-intentioned because we truly do desire to be an example to the flock. But on the other hand, friends, that, that temptation flows out of pride. Pastors, like their flock, are very much a work in progress. So it's convicting in that way, and it's a relief because it shows me that while I should model Christ's likeness and be above reproach in the qualifications for overseers set out in chapter 3, apparently Paul did not mean that elders will get it right every time or the first time. Kevin DeYoung so helpfully put it, progress is not only what God expects from me, but what he allows from me. It's, it's not what, just what he expects from me, it's what he allows from me. Praise God for that freedom. Beloved, what is true for elders is true for all of us. When it comes to our sanctification, our growth in Christ, where you're going is more important than where you are or where you've been. Your path matters more than your current position. And as you would expect, this progress, friends, is to be observed over months and years, not days and weeks. Months and years, not days and weeks. David Pallison, a, a biblical counselor who's now gone on to be with the Lord, used to compare sanctification to a man walking up stairs with a yo-yo, right? There's a lot of ups and downs, but eventual progress in getting where you want to go. So here's what I'm committed to, friends, in my life. And here's what I would have your perspective be as a church. Friends, don't beat yourself up if your Tuesday wasn't more godly than your Monday. Rather, let's measure our progress over the last several months, and even better, over the last several years. And when it comes to this entire topic, remember that it's really other Christians who are the ones noticing the progress, not so much you for your progress and me for mine. It's they who can kind of get out the spiritual tape measure and measure things more accurately. 
Friends, this is why godly friendships and godly encouragement is so important for the Christian life. Because we need this type of feedback, don't we? We need this type of feedback and this type of encouragement. So friends, let's commit to each be the type of friend that when we see progress in someone's life and sanctification, we identify it to them so that they and we can give God thanks. Finally, in verse 16, Paul wraps up the entire discussion by summarizing things again. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Pastoral ministry is hard. It's difficult personally and ministerially. I I guarantee you there were times when Timothy didn't feel like persisting and watching his life and his doctrine. But look at this last motivation. I mentioned there were two. Here's the second one from Paul. For by so doing, you will both save yourself and your hearers. Friends, in the same way that godliness holds promise for the life to come, if a pastor's life and teaching honor Christ, those two things likewise hold promise for the life to come. It's future salvation on the last day that is controlling Paul's mindset here. Yes, God alone saves by His grace, rooted in the saving work of Christ on the cross. But friends, we persevere by faith to the end. As as pastors watch their life, they save themselves, as it were. And as they watch their doctrine, they save their hearers. As we deploy the gospel doctrine of the word, God grants and sustains saving faith in the congregation who receives it. This is the blueprint for ministry. So friends, may God give me and Steve and Bo and you, the congregation of Redeeming Grace Church, His grace to train for godliness and to persist in faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clear instruction of your word this morning. Lord, there's no mistaking what you've told us. And even if it at times seems like a hard word, we know that it is a gracious word. Lord, we praise you that, that baked into the very command to train ourselves for godliness is the promise of eternal life. That godliness holds promise for the life to come. And so, Father, we want to lay hold on the eternal life that awaits us, that we want to run to win the prize. Oh, so Father, help us to remember that you have already given us all that we need for life and godliness. You have given us your spirit and you have given us your word and gospel. And so Father, I pray that you would help us to take seriously uh, this task of pursuing you, pursuing a God-honoring life with all that we have. Oh, Father, this morning for those who are struggling in this task, encourage them. And may they even feel a level of, of, of conviction, a desire to change, and help, help them to take the necessary steps to pursue you with all your heart. Oh, Father, for those who are, who are wrestling with specific sins, oh, Father, help them to be willing to set them aside to pursue a God-honoring life. 
Come on, Father, for those who are seemingly doing well and who are running this race, not perfectly because all of us are sinners, but who are running the race faithfully. Oh, Father, may they feel today through this, this word, wind in their sails. Father, that eternal life awaits those who pursue you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.